Parshas Shmini is famous for, among other things, the significant group of psukim, the entire corpus of psukim contained in Perak Yud Aleph, which categorizes all of the various animals, fish and fowl, that are prohibited to be eaten, that are not kosher. There are other places in the Torah where other aspects of a kosher diet are mentioned, but the primary, and this is the first and primary area in the Torah where the kosher diet, the kosher food uh, restrictions and prescriptions are given, is here in this week's Parsha, Shmini Perak Yudalef. We learn all the categories of animals, fish, and fowl. However, for the most part, it is somewhat surprising and therefore intriguing that no real reason seems to be given for this corpus of laws, which is so defining of the Jewish people, of kosher. At the end of the chapter, towards the end of the parak, the Torah does repeat twice in somewhat vague terms that there is a goal of making us holy. Says the Torah, you should become holy through these laws, through eating these foods and not eating others, because I, Hashem, am holy. And the Torah repeats this in the very next pasuk: I'm Hashem, the Lord your God, who took you out of Egypt, became your God, you became my nation. Yisem Kedoshim, you should be holy. Ki Kadosh Ani says God, because I am holy as well. But it's not at all clear uh, if that really is the ultimate reason or how these foods, eating and not eating them, uh, particular respectively connect to this larger goal of holiness. Moreover, it's hard to see that as a unique motivation and telos for the laws of kosher when really kedoshim to you is the goal of the entire Torah, all 613 mitzvahs. So the specific mitzvah of kosher, hard to limit it to just that. So it seems, therefore, that the posuk and the verses in the Torah itself is somewhat vague and insufficient, and therefore it should come as no surprise that virtually all of the mafarshim suggest one reason or another to try to explain the laws of kosher. And I think if one looks into the contempt, the classical medieval mafarshim and commentaries, one can find, roughly speaking, three types of answers, three different approaches to the question of why kosher. One group of mafarshim, led by Rambam in the Mornavuchim, the Sefer Hachinuch, Ramban mentions this as well in our parsha. Rashbam actually thinks this is the simple and obvious explanation. They all explain that the prohibited foods listed in our parsha are, are so, are prohibited, because they are bad for our physical health. In fact, it is not more than that. The Torah wants us to have a healthy body so that we can have a healthy mind and soul, and the laws of kosher and avoiding these prohibited foods are a way of keeping these bad and unhealthy influences out of our body so that we can live a healthy and hopefully therefore spiritually productive life. But the purpose of these laws, of avoiding these particular foods, says the Rambam and the Sefer Chinuch, Ramban and others, is because they are bad for our physical health. The Sefer HaChinuch in Mitzvah Ayin Gimel raises an obvious question on himself and on this approach, which is that many non-Jews eat these very foods and they seem to be living a physically healthy life. How can we assume that they are physically unhealthy if non-Jews are eating some of these foods, many, all these foods, and still healthy? Says, Sefer HaChinuch, Al Titmalein, that don't, don't let your heart be troubled by this. Ki chacham yoser mimcha u'meihem. Says the Sefer HaChinuch, even if you or contemporary doctors don't understand the health benefits of a kosher diet, have no fear, the Rofe Neman, the ultimate doctor in the sky, who is the one who authored these laws, he is wiser than you and wiser than all the doctors. And if he says they're unhealthy, if he says avoiding them is a healthy lifestyle, then we can take it to the bank 
It's a matter of faith. No doubt about it. It must be true. This is the first approach, physical health. Many other commentaries reject this approach for one of various different reasons. And the Abarbanel, who is one of the commentaries who rejects this, summarizes three objections, three problems with this first approach. Number one, as we already saw, you know, one question one has to ask is, many non-Jews eat these foods and they seem to be just fine. But number two, says the Abarbanel, the opposite is also true. If the whole purpose of these laws is to promote a healthy lifestyle, it seems peculiar and very hard to understand why so many things which are clearly unhealthy are kosher. I mean, let's be honest, it's hard to argue that uh, a really oily uh, chulint or kishka or potato kegel are really healthy for you, and yet they are kosher. So if the Torah's agenda is a kosher body, it's hard to understand why certain things are prohibited, but many others which seem to be also unhealthy are permitted. Both of these are very good questions, I think, but they're also very practical. The third comment of the Ramban is, I I think, more fundamental and therefore more relevant and really to the point. Says the Barbanel, even if you could stipulate and somehow prove that these foods are healthier, something which, as we just saw, the Barbanel is not convinced of, but even if, even if you could prove that, to say that that's the reason for the corpus of Jewish law of kosher reduces the stature of the Torah by lowering it to nothing more than an ancient medical textbook. Maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, but even if it's right about the health benefits, that's all the Torah is? It's a version of a good diet book, a healthy eating book from the ancient world? The Torah is supposed to be so much more, so much more sublime. How can we reduce the level of the Torah to mere science and a textbook? Therefore, say the Abarbanel, Sforno, Kliokar, and others, the purpose of the kosher laws is to promote our health, but not our physical health, our spiritual health. We can't obviously understand this, we can't explain this in a rational way, but say these Mepharshim, the purpose of these laws is to promote spiritual health, and the foods that are prohibited in our Parsha are because the Torah knows that they are damaging to our spiritual health and moral fiber. As the Kliyakar says, It is to help promote the health of our soul. The Torah realizes that these foods, avoiding them, is necessary because these foods would otherwise create a blockage in the spiritual arteries and stunt our religious growth. Third and finally, Akedas Yitzhak says, I have no explanation for the specifics, but for the overall idea of kosher, he says, it selective abstinence benefits the Jewish people because there's a clear separation from non-Jews, gives us discipline, and injects spirituality into the everyday action of eating. There's a very interesting and somewhat curious episode that is kind of sneaks in to our Parsha, a Parsha that is filled with big halachic discussions, famous tragedies, and yet one of the really interesting episodes occurs in the Perak Yud, where Moshe and Aaron engage in a kind of a brief halachic argument or dispute regarding the consumption of a certain kind of carbon, a certain kind of sacrificial meat. And the Torah tells us in Perak Yud, Pasachaf, that when Moshe heard his brother Aaron's rebuttal, Moshe concedes, V'yishma Moshe v'yitav v'enav. He heard what was said, and he agreed that really Aaron was right, and he was wrong. Rashi quotes from the Gemara, Masech Tezvachim, Adav Kuf Aleph Amar Aleph, who adds the following, Hoda v'lobosh, 
Moshe admitted that he was wrong and he was not embarrassed. He wasn't embarrassed. Lomar, lo shamati, ella shamati v'shachachti. That's the full quote from the Gemara. Moshe wasn't embarrassed to, and didn't claim as an excuse, oh, I didn't hear that halacha. Rather, he admitted the truth and he said, I heard it, you're right, but I forgot the proper halacha and the way you recounted the halacha is in fact correct. This is very, very fascinating teaching of Rashi and the Gemara in Masech Tazvachim. Evidently, we would have assumed, or at least the possibility, of Moshe not really admitting the truth. That there was a possibility that Moshe would have pretended and said, Oh, maybe Aaron, you're right, but you know, lo shamati. I never heard that. But in fact, Moshe admitted the truth, and once Aaron made his points, Moshe said, you know, you're right. In fact, I realize now that this is what Hashem had always told me. I had forgotten. And the Torah, as Rashi and Chazal are indicating, is very proud of and complimentary to Moshe. Hoda Bosh. Moshe wasn't ashamed. Rather, he admitted it. What is not entirely clear from the Rashi and from the Gemara is what exactly was this shame that Moshe could have had, but instead somehow avoided, thus earning the praise of Chazal. What would have been so bad if he had forgotten? There seems to be something going on here that Chazal assume is almost self-explanatory, and because Moshe overcomes that, somehow we can appreciate Moshe, he's deserving of credit. What exactly is it that he overcame, and why is he deserving, evidently, of so much credit? The Moshe Feinstein, in his beautiful Sefer, Darash Moshe, actually brings two different explanations to this question, which in some way are actually opposite of one another. The first explanation that Rav Moshe himself suggests is that in fact, had Moshe forgotten the law, if that had been the case, the fact that Moshe forgot the halacha, that itself is worthy of shame. Shikacha gerua. Shikacha, says Rav Moshe, forgetting Torah, is something that really is deserving of shame. And therefore, we would have understood why Moshe was ashamed and might have been tempted to weasel out of or you know, deny the source of his shame by claiming he hadn't heard. Because to admit that he forgot a halacha, in fact, says Rav Moshe, according to this first answer, really is something deserving of shame. Why is forgetfulness so shameful? So Rav Moshe explains that a person should be embarrassed when he forgets his Torah knowledge because to a great extent, memory is an indication of how important a person views the information. Says Rav Moshe, Lo chash lozev en choshev shemipaz umipninim yikara hi kalachayim. A person realized just how precious, how valuable Torah is, more valuable than the most precious jewels, that it's life itself. If a person truly appreciates Torah, so then you won't forget it. People don't usually forget such highly important critical information. And if you do forget, says Ramosha, it indicates that you had an insufficient regard for the knowledge in the first place. The greatness, says Ramosha, here is that Moshe was willing to confess his forgetfulness of Torah, despite the fact that he had a deserved sense of embarrassment about the fact that he forgot in the first place, since that indicates that he must not have truly valued the Torah sufficiently. Ramosha goes on to suggest a second interpretation, quoting this time from his youngest son, Ruvain Feinstein, who suggested a completely different approach, and that when Rashi and Chazal say that Moshe wasn't embarrassed, they don't mean that he was not embarrassed to admit his mistake. 
which is the first interpretation that we saw. Rather, Moshe, according to this interpretation, was not embarrassed at all. Not that he wasn't embarrassed to admit his mistake, he was not embarrassed by the mistake. He wasn't embarrassed at all. Says Revuvain, Moshe is teaching us a very important lesson. There's no reason to be embarrassed because you forgot something. A person has to realize, says Ramosha, excuse me, says Ravuvain, Feinstein, Ramosha's son, who he's quoting, that we're only human, and human beings make a mistake. In other words, Moshe is teaching us a very valuable lesson. You do not have to feel ashamed at forgetting. We're only human, and human beings sometimes forget even important things. It's the nature of Torah study is that there are ups and downs, successes and failures, and none of those various setbacks, including when we forget, even if we shouldn't, but we do forget. That shouldn't, and it really should not at all, cause us shame. Rather, we should acknowledge the setback, see how we can improve, and move forward. Moshe, according to this second interpretation, was not embarrassed because he was willing to admit that he was human. And even for him, occasionally forgetting something was natural and unavoidable. So we have, in fact, two different interpretations to the question, which in many ways are opposite, but really, I think, complement one another. The first interpretation given by Moshe Feinstein himself is that, in fact, Moshe was embarrassed about his mistake because his forgetfulness indicated a lack of sufficient appreciation of the material. If we truly value Torah, if we feel like each word is life itself and more valuable than any riches, we're going to remember much more than we would otherwise. It's not just a passing fad or some light information. However, Ruvain Feinstein is teaching us that even when we do forget, we have to realize that we're human. Everyone, even the greatest that people forget, because that's what it means to be human. Torah is hard. Becoming a scholar is a long, arduous task with many ups and downs. We should never get frustrated, and we should admit our mistakes, move on, and keep on growing. The highlight, or low light, as it were, of Parsha Shmini is undoubtedly the sudden and tragic deaths of our own sons, not of Nevi'u. After the seven days of dedicating the Mishkan that we read about in last week's Parsha, our Parsha begins Biyom Hashmini on the eighth day, which is really the first day of the regular new service of the Mishkan, with Aharon as the Kohen Gadol and his children as his assistants as the Kohanim. And we are told that seemingly out of nowhere, Nadav and Avihu, following up on their father's service in the Mishkan, they decide to bring a fire offering with incense of their own. They brought an Eish Zara, Asher Lo Yitziva Osam. They brought a foreign fire, one that had not been commanded by Hashem. They included Ketores, incense, and right away, we are told, all of this in the beginning of Perak Yud, Swift justice is meted out, Without any warning, without any hesitation, not even of you are killed by a heavenly fire that comes down and kills them in their place. The drama and the tragedy of this story is, of course, uh, cannot be overstated, and it deserves much, much analysis and insight and understanding. But I want to focus, if we can, briefly on perhaps the most basic moral question, and that is, what was so bad about what not even of you did? The Torah seems to give us a clue describing this as a strange fire that they were not commanded to bring. But at least many of the opinions in Chazal, rabbis in the Medrash and the Gemara, refused to take this at face value. After all, it would seem hard to understand what exactly was the mistake in bringing a fire if you're not commanded. What's so bad about that? 
And why could that possibly be deserving of swift and ultimate punishment, killing them right there in front of their father, in front of the entire nation, without any hesitation? What could be really the deeper understanding of their sin? What did they really do wrong? So as I mentioned, just focusing on Chazal, not even getting into later commentaries, just Chazal themselves are full of numerous different theories and interpretations. Gemara Erevin and Samach Gimel, and there's a parallel Gemara Masech Sanhedrin, tell us that the problem of Narvin Aviyu was that they paskin, they ruled on a halachic matter in the presence of their teacher, Moshe Rabbeinu. If you're asked a question, says the Gemara, or in this case, if you have a question of your own and you are making a halachic ruling, it's not appropriate to do that on your own if your teacher is right there. If you get asked a question or you have a question for yourself and your teacher is available and right in your presence, the appropriate uh, halachic etiquette is to speak to your Rebbe, to let your Rebbe rule, your teacher rule, the bigger expert, the bigger master, by the student, in this case, not even of you, <clears throat> ruling for themselves, they breach that halachic etiquette that was a corruption of the halachic process, which is supposed to give priority to the teacher over the student, and therefore, according to the Gemara, that's why they were deserving of death. A second opinion is suggested in the Medrash and the Yikra Rabbah here in our Parsha, that they entered the Mishkan to offer this fire offering, they had imbibed alcohol, they drank wine, perhaps a little bit tipsy or drunk, and that itself is a problem, a very, very severe problem, as the Torah itself mentions just a few psukim later. The support for this interpretation seems to be quite clearly because the context a little bit later on in Perak Yud, as the psukim continue after Nadavan Aviyu's death, the Torah itself tells us these halachos, generally the halacha, that it's usr for someone to enter into the Mishkan, to be involved in the service, the avoda in the Mishkan, shesuyayayin, if they have a drink too much alcohol or wine. So the fact that that's the next halachic section in the Torah indicates as a clue to the rabbis in the Medrash in this opinion that that was also the sin of Nadavan Aviyu. It's not a coincidence that those halachos are juxtaposed and come in the Torah right after Nadavan Aviyu's death. It indicates, says the Madrash in this opinion, that Nadavan Aviyu's own sin was that they had had too much alcohol to drink. A third opinion that is mentioned in the Medrash in Vayukra Rabbah, not in our Parsha, but on the companion Parsha of Achremos, is that Nadavan Aviyu, in a very horrific uh, display of uh, narcissism and selfishness, or worse, were pining away, hoping that their father and their uncle, that Moshe and Aaron would die, so that they would be able to lead the nation. Says the Edrish, Moshe was walking with Aaron, not even a view behind them, the entire Jewish people behind them, and the two sons of Aaron, not even a view, were telling themselves, Masai when will these two old men die so that we can take over of where we can have the leadership, we can have all the power and the prestige of being the leader. Really quite a shocking, shocking interpretation and suggestion, but we could understand why that would be such a horrible, degrading and moral flaw that they would be deserving of swift and ultimate justice. These three approaches, for all that they are different from one another, share something in common, and that is whether you say it's because they pask in the Shaila in Moshe's presence, they entered the Mikdash while they were drunk, or they were pining away from Moshe and Aaron's death, I think they share a connection to the issue of authority. They didn't have enough respect for others' authority, Moshe, the Mishkan, and they had too much interest in their own power and authority, and that ties, I think, all three of these interpretations together, 
a certain theme of understanding what they did wrong. A whole different approach is suggested also in the Medrash of Yikarabah, in Archaimos, and that is a two different opinions which I think clearly go together, one which says that they refuse to get married, and the other that they refuse to have children. And the common thread to both of these seems to be one of arrogance. As the Medrash there describes in great detail, they said, given who we are, our stature, given who our father is, our uncles, etc., who could possibly be worthy enough on a high enough level to marry us. Because they held themselves out to be at such a high level, they refused to get married, even though their father, their uncle, other great people had gotten married, but their arrogance prevented them from getting married because they didn't think anyone was worthy of marrying them. Last but not least is an incredible interpretation of the Yalkut Shimoni, which says that initially, really, they didn't, try to rebel or do anything that you would think would be wrong. When they saw the fire come down in the previous Pasuk from Hashem, they decided to be Mosif Ahava Ahava. They saw the love of Hashem being shown to the people through the fire. They brought their own fire to show their love to Hashem. What could be so wrong about bringing a fire that's uninitiated? So the matter seems to be telling us that this was a crime of passion, as it were. They were doing this spontaneously without halachic sanction, and that itself is a problem. After Moshe has completed the inauguration of the Mishkan, in the beginning of our Parsha, we are told that Moshe instructs Aaron, Karav el Now it's your turn, Aaron. Now that the Mishkan is ready to be serviced, it is now the spiritual home of the Jewish people, where Hashem will reside. Aaron, you are now the Kongadol, and now you have the special mitzvah of doing the avoda here on the Yom Hashmini on the eighth day, after the previous seven days of inauguration led by Moshe. Rashi, on this pasuk, quotes a very famous comment of the Medrash in the Torah's Kohanim, that the reason that Moshe had to tell Aaron, Karav el Hamizbeach, is because at that point, Aaron was hesitating. According to the Lashon of the Medrash, Haya Aaron Bosh, the Yare Lageshes. Aaron was somewhat embarrassed, or ashamed, timid, scared, he didn't want to approach, he didn't want to enter into the Mishkan. Amr lo Moshe, so Moshe told him, Lama tabosh, why are you embarrassed? Why are you feeling shamed or timid or insecure? Lakach nivcharta. This is what you were chosen for. This fascinating and really, I would say, powerful conversation that took place between Moshe and Aaron at this critical stage raises a fascinating question. What is the Medrash, what is Rashi who quotes the Medrash, what are they intimating about Aaron's initial reluctance, about his initial uh, emotional reticence, what is described in the language of the Medrash as Bosh Viyare. He was somewhat embarrassed or timid, insecure, and even fearful of entering in the Mishkan. Is this a good Mida, a bad Mida, something that is inherently problematic, something that was just not ideal, how are we to look at Aaron's mentality before Moshe encouraged him strongly to enter into the Mishkan? So at the surface, it would seem to me at least that we are criticizing this behavior, and that's why Moshe tells him, come on, get on with it, this is your job. However, in a remarkable, short, but incredibly powerful and remarkable piece, the Sfasemes takes a more nuanced, sophisticated, and ultimately, I would say, even broader and comprehensive approach to this episode. Svasemis starts off, off with the assumption that this is Aaron HaKohen we're talking about. Aaron was a tzaddik, he was righteous, he was a shalem, he was a completely uh, refined personality. And therefore, we have to assume, prima facie, at first glance, 
that his busha that is being described here was in itself a good thing. On the other hand, says Svasemis, the opposite is also true, that Hashem has commanded our own, and that in itself makes approaching and entering the Mishkan and doing the Avodah the right thing to do. In other words, says Svasemis, the koach of the tzivoy will guide our own despite his feeling of being inadequate or insecure. In other words, yes, the busha was right in and of itself, says the Svasemes, but that was overwhelmed by something that was even more correct. And that is that the Sivoy Hashem, the command of Hashem, overwhelmed the reluctance of Aaron. And in fact, the fact that, despite the fact that he felt inadequate, the fact that he had the Tzivoy, so to speak, on his side, would be what would help him successfully navigate and do his job. What's interesting, actually, is that in a, in a different piece on our Parsha, uh, from a later year, the Svasemes says a slightly different approach. He says, Lakach Nifcharta means that the very feeling of katnus, the feeling that you have of extreme humility or even inadequacy, that itself is the schus that will give you the success. Not that you were chosen to do it even though you're scared, rather because you are scared, that is why you were chosen, because you were timid, because you weren't power hungry, you weren't lusting for the job, you didn't just want to be the Kohen Gadol, but rather your Bosh Vayari Lageshes, your very timidity is your greatest source. It reminds me of a famous story, I don't know if it's a true story or not, but a famous story uh, with Rav Shlomo Zaman Orbach, that he was giving someone smicha, and the person was afraid to accept this honor, he said, I'm scared to paskin, which Rosh Zaman supposedly responded, and what, would you prefer I give smicha to someone who isn't scared to paskin? In other words, sometimes the timidity, the bosh, the yare, is itself a virtue. It's a sign that you understand who you are, you understand the gravity and the importance of the mission, and a person who takes a huge and very complicated and very important job with no sense of inadequacy, with no sense of fear, that itself would be absul, that would be a reyesa, there would be something wrong with that. The very fact that Aaron was Bosh Yari Lageshes, says in itself was a good thing, but yet, yet nevertheless, the Lakach Nifcharta, the Tzivoy Hashem, is what had to carry the day. Once the Svasemes has given this analysis of Aaron, he then uses the final part of the piece to have a broader discussion. And he says that there are examples of shame, of Busha, which are negative or unhealthy, and those are ones that come from a more emotional place. However, the other form, the one that is epitomized by Aaron here, was not emotional, but actually quite rational. It was based on an honest and accurate self-assessment and an understanding of the reality. A human, even one as great as Aaron, when he compares himself to the high level of holiness that's demanded by the Mishkan, by serving Hashem, of course a person should feel unequal to the task. What person could feel that they are deserving and worthy of such an incredibly high responsibility? The very fact that Aaron responded right away to Moshe, when Moshe said, no, you have to go, and indeed, Aaron listened, despite his own reluctancy. The very next pasuk says, Aaron did it, when Moshe told him to do so. So says the Sasemes, that shows that this was a good and healthy form of Busha. It was based on an accurate self-assessment, an accurate assessment of the importance and the gravity of the mission. But nevertheless, when he realized that this was the mission, this was his destiny, he did it. Sasemis concludes by referring to this type of what he calls authentic busha. He calls it busha shel emes, a true authentic sense, a re- understanding of the reality. 
Such a busha says the Sasemist does not lead to any kind of depression uh, or negativity or sadness. On the contrary, it can lead to genuine contentment. Since genuine contentment and happiness in life comes from a true and honest appraisal of yourself, a self-awareness, which is a healthy thing. And then he concludes by alluding to a comment of the Talad Yahu, Samachti mitoch yirasi, yirasi mitoch simchasi. Sometimes yira can bring a person to simcha. And that's the kind of yira that comes from a rational and honest self-awareness and self-assessment. Parsha Shmini deals with which animals are kosher and which species of animals are not kosher. And one of the halachos, which is indirectly related, but certainly related to that discussion, is the question of milk. Which milk is considered kosher and which milk is not? And the basic principle on a Torah level is that milk that comes from a kosher animal is by extension kosher, and milk that is obtained from a non-kosher species of animal is by extension non-kosher. That's the easy part. Question is, and this is much more complicated and it emerges from a discussion in Maseches Avodah is what if you have milk, which as far as you know, comes from a kosher animal. However, it was entirely prepared, it was milked and prepared by non-Jewish farmers, non-Jewish workers. Is a Jew allowed to rely on the testimony of the non-Jewish workers who say that this is cow's milk, it comes from a kosher animal, and eat it, or would that be itself a problem? And the Mishnah in Masechah of Zarah and Daflamid Hayam Bay tells us that perhaps on a Torah level the milk should be considered permissible. However, Chazal prohibited this as a rabbinic prohibition in Isra Darabanan, that milk that is obtained and fully milked by non-Jewish farmers and workers without any Jewish supervision, without any mashkiach, as it were, is not permitted. And the Gemara explains that the reason is not that we're worried that the milk is completely going to be switched, and it'll be a switcheroo, and instead of the kosher milk, the farmer gives you completely non-kosher milk, because the Gemara assumes that there is perhaps a different look slightly or a different taste which people would be able to notice. However, the Gemara is worried about a more subtle problem which perhaps the Jewish consumer would not notice, and that is if there are smaller trace amounts of non-kosher milk that get mixed into the larger kosher milk, and maybe that will not be detectable when somebody drinks the milk, but in fact could present a halachic problem. And that is the Isser de Rabbanon, of drinking milk that is fully prepared by non-Jewish dairy farmers. The Rishonim already discuss a possible leniency, uh, and which would be very, very helpful if we accept the leniency, and that is the question of whether this Zera Durabanon, this Takana, this Din, does that apply even if you are in a situation in which on the farm or in the area where this milk has been obtained, there are no non-kosher dairy-producing animals. If you have kosher and non-kosher species all in the same place, each of which can uh, produce milk, then we could understand, perhaps, the Mishnah's concern. But if there are no non-Jewish animals that produce milk in the area, so the Rishonim wonder, perhaps in such a situation we don't have to be worried, because then it's not just the reliability and integrity of the farmer that we're uh, relying on, but rather it's the very fact that in Metzius there are no non-kosher dairy-producing animals at all, so what is there to worry about? In the Rishonim, this is discussed by the Mordechai, Radvaz, the Smak, and others, and there really are three positions that seem to emerge. Some are completely strict, it doesn't matter, this is Xera, and it doesn't matter if the reason doesn't apply, the Din applies. Alternatively, others say, no, we can be totally lenient in this case, if you know that there were no non-kosher animals in the farm, you're fine. And a third approach is somewhere in the middle, it says you can be lenient, you can be make ill, 
if in the entire area, not just on this particular farm, but in the entire area, there are no non-kosher milk-producing animals, which can be or regularly are milked. And this is a very, very interesting uh, machlokas. And the question, of course, is how do we paskin? So this itself is a debate. There's one very prominent achron, the pre who is in fact lenient. And he says, we have to ask ourselves one question. In the general location, in the area which we find ourselves, are there non-kosher animals that are milked to produce milk that is in the market in that area? If there is, even if there was no non-kosher animals on the particular dairy farm which you got the milk from, then we have to be worried. But if there's no milk that is obtained from non-kosher animals anywhere in the area, if there is a non-kosher milk-producing animal in the zoo, that does not create a problem. But if on the dairy farms where they're producing milk practically, realistically, there are no non-kosher animals, so says the Brichadosh that we have a right to be lenient. Uh, this would be a very, very practical and very helpful uh, heter if we accept it, because in many of the Western countries in which we live, if not all of them, uh, there are no uh, animals that are being milked on any consistent basis, if at all, that are not kosher. And therefore, according to the Prichadosh, we have a significant, significant leniency. However, the problem is that most all other poskim reject the leniency of the Prichadosh, and that is the position that is brought down by the Archashulchan, the Chachmas Adam, the Chasam Sofer, and they all rule strictly, and not only do they rule strictly, they note that the custom of Jews in Central and Eastern Europe has always been l'chumra, even if there are no non-kosher dairy animals in the area, nevertheless the practice is to be machmir nonetheless. Other post-schemes such as the Steichemed note that that has also been the custom in Israel for many, many centuries to always be strict on this question, despite the fact that there is one lenient opinion out there. Uh, there is an interesting uh, footnote historically that the stipler, in his letters, writes that his brother-in-law, the Chazonish, actually would rely on this leniency of the Chazonish in cases of great need. For example, during the difficult war years, wartime years in the beginning of the state of Israel, when people were very poor and impoverished and very frail, so the Chazonish did allow yeshiva students to drink powdered milk that had been entirely produced by non-Jews based on the heter of the Chasams of, of the uh, of the Pre-Kharash. Uh, a second heter, which is more practical for most of us, is the famous heter of Ramosha Feinstein. And this is based on a Gemara later on in Avodah which says that if there's a Jewish supervisor, even if the main work of the dairy farming is being done by non-Jews, but there's a Jewish supervisor, and it, that Jewish supervisor doesn't, doesn't even need to be constantly watching the milking, but he has easy access to view the milking, then the milking is the milk is permitted because we have a principle in halacha known as mirtas that the non-Jewish dairy farmer is going to be nervous that the Jew will catch him if he anyway in any way mixes in some non-Jewish milk, non-kosher milk and therefore we can rely on the fact that he's scared of being caught by the Jewish supervisor and therefore he won't do it. That is true on a local one by one small dairy farm to dairy farm situation. That was the case of the Gemara. So says Ramosha Feinstein, he thinks that in countries such as America or other Western countries where there is governmental supervision and by tremendous penalty of of financial fines, all the dairy farms must only use milk from a cow, kosher milk, and there is tremendous supervision by the FDA, etc., etc. In such a case, he says, we can rely on that supervision to create a reality of mirtas, and therefore basically functionally all the milk produced in those countries is a form of Chal of Yisrael and permitted.